Hey everybody, you hear that? Sounds like tea time. Island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island. Island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk. Tea time talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk. Yeah, island talk. Keeping it real and never fake. Right here on the kitchen island talk. Dishing the tea with Lady V, B, J, Show T. We forever styling. Real talk about real issues. If you don't like it, then go get a tissue. Walking, talking like a diva should. Wouldn't choose another sisterhood to Island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk, island talk. What's up, everybody? It's one of your fantastic hosts here at the Kitchen Island, Vanita. I hope this episode finds you having a great 2022 so far. We are already in the month of February, which is Black History Month. During this episode, we will be highlighting Black history makers from the past and even some in the present. Listen, Black history is American history. It should be taught and learned. Let's not keep children from learning. To know is to grow. So grab your cup. It's time to share the tea. Everybody, this is BJ, one of the co-hosts of Kitchen Island Tea Podcast, and it's February, Black History Month, so let's talk Black history. I selected a person from the music world, specifically jazz. This trumpeter, band leader, and composer impacted the jazz world, inspired other musicians, and never gave up on what he believed his music should be. I admire him for being one of the most innovative musicians ever, a unique and often caring band manager who looked out for others, and a man who worked to conquer his drug habits. Yes, I said he had drug habits. And he weathered his civil rights battles. Not to mention he was a fashion icon of his time. That person is none other than Miles Dewey Davis III, Mr. Cool. He knew who he was, he had his own style, and he had a certain sense of pride that was always present. I'll say this up front. Miles Dewey Davis III was not a perfect man. He had a lot of little demons, but he was a mile taker, a mile maker in jazz. Over six full decades from his arrival on the national scene in 1945 until his death in 1991, Miles Davis made music that grew from his uncanny talent to hear music of the future, and he had a headstrong desire to explore new music territory anywhere he went. He brought feeling from every note he played, and that's evidenced by several Grammy Awards he received. Miles became the standard bearer for successive generations. He shaped the course of modern improvisational music more than a half dozen ways during his six-decade career. He experimented with rock, with funk, uh, African rhythms, electronic music technology, and he was forever changing the lineup of his musicians. Sometimes it was because they did get along, sometimes because they didn't. And it was always because they had what it took to make the music. So check out his albums and their progression. His million-selling 1970 record, Bitches Brew, helped spark a resurgence in the genre's commercial popularity with jazz fusion as the decade progressed. 
So who is Miles Davis, the legend? Miles Davis was the most widely recognized jazz musician musician of his era. He was outspoken, he was a social critic, and he was a man of style in attitude and fashion as well as his music. In 2006, Miles was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they recognized him as one of the key figures in the history of jazz. Rolling Stone magazine described him as the most revered jazz trumpeter of all time, not to mention one of the most important musicians of the 20th century. He was influential. He was innovative. So really, who is Miles Davis, the legend? Miles grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, where his father was a prosperous dental surgeon. And I'm from St. Louis, and East St. Louis is just across the Mississippi River. So I'm very familiar with that area. And it's hard to believe that Miles' father, a black man, was so prosperous in that era and in that time and in that place. Miles often spoke of his comfortable upbringing, sometimes to rebuke critics who assumed that a background of poverty and suffering was common to all jazz artists and especially all black people. Although racial discrimination and prejudice were alive and well in the 40s, you would think that a prosperous family might not experience so much. But as a child, Miles was chased by a white neighbor wielding a shotgun but his father and his family navigated those times. Miles received a trumpet at age 12. And you all, by age 17, he was playing with jazz bands in the St. Louis and East St. Louis era. And he was considered uh, in an area that was called fertile, blues-drenched music scene. He was a sensitive soul, forging a seething streetwise exterior that later earned him the title of Prince of Darkness. And if you look at any of his album covers or his pictures, he's not smiling. He thought that entertainers during the time always had to smile and, you know, fake smiles. And so he just gave them the straight look of Miles. Although his mother wanted him to become an accomplished pianist and violinist like her, Miles convinced his parents to let him go to New York City and attend the famed Juilliard School of Music. That was in 1944. This allowed him to locate and join the band of his idol, bebop pioneer, Charlie Parker. Now, Charlie Parker had a lot of vices, and everybody in the music world told Miles, look out, he's good with the music and the notes, but you don't want to get into all the vices that he has. It wasn't long before the headstrong young musician grew from side man to lead for his own projects and bands, and they became world-renowned. This brought his first album, and you know the name, Birth of the Cool. I said he had business acumen. And so in his early days, getting gigs in New York's clubs, musicians had to play several sets a night, and they only received one paycheck or one rate. Miles is credited with demanding fewer sets and payment for each set. He never did four, five, six sets a night as some other artists had to do. And so he paved the way for others. He also credit, was credited with being one of the early musicians who wrote his own contract with his own specific requirements. Miles could be hard on his musicians too, but when a new band member played the wrong note, Miles didn't fuss or cuss. He just improvised and innovated to make the note correct. 
I also told you that I respected Miles Davis and thought we should talk about him during black history because he dealt with prejudice and injustice. By 1959, Miles was on top of the world. News flash, famed black artist is beaten by two police officers in midtown Manhattan and falsely charged. It sounds like it could be a news article from today. But in fact, we're talking about 1959. The artist was Miles Davis. In the eyes of the American public, Davis was an icon, but the police didn't see it that way. So what happened? On a summer night in August 1959, Miles took a break from his recording and singing session, I mean playing session at the Birdland nightclub in New York City. Davis was already an international star. He had just come off the release of his groundbreaking album, Kind of Blue. He was dressed to the nines in an Italian sport jacket, and he escorted a blonde-haired woman to a taxi, as a gentleman would. But he stood outside, and he signed autographs for his fans. Then the police came. I won't call the policeman's name, but he started to tell Miles to move on. Miles pointed to the sign of the marquee and said, Look, I'm the headliner for this show tonight. And the policeman said, you need to move on. And so an altercation ensued. Uh, One of the women in the crowd had to hit on the policeman to make him stop. And so Miles was jailed and then he was, went to court and he got out on a thousand dollars bond. And when he walked out of the jail, one of the news critics said, Miles is bloodied, but he looks completely unbowed. It makes the policemen look like they didn't do a good job, but Miles comes out looking like the sophisticated cosmopolitan artist that he is. And so I like to think of that situation as it came out for the good because it showed the world that Miles could withstand the hardship of prejudice as a sophisticated cosmopolitan artist. He likes sports cars, and nice clothes. He loved his Ferrari and Lamborghini, but more than that, he took pride in his jazz, and he was an icon who made an impact on the lives of so many artists, even Charlie Parker, his idol, John Coltrane, Dizzy Gillespie. I could go on and on with all kinds of names, And listen, he loved the funk of Rose Royce, Cameo, and Chaka Khan and Prince. So he was a man of all genres, but he focused on jazz. So I salute Miles Dewey Davis III. He wasn't perfect, but he loved jazz. Islanders, we just want to check in with you personally. We would love to hear from you with feedback about your favorite episodes, any ideas you have about possible future topics, and guest suggestions. We can be reached at our email, which is kitchenislandtea at gmail.com. Also reach out to us via Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, be safe, mask up, 
and keep hope alive. Ciao. It's Vanita and my turn to share with you who has inspired me from black history. I have considered myself an athlete since a very young age. I know the ladies here at the island are saying, here she goes again. At a young age, I love to run and jump. I have been watching sports since elementary school and sports on TV was always my first choice over everything. Being a part of a military family, it was hard for me to get involved in sports with moving around so much. It wasn't until high school that I got involved in sports. I was encouraged to join the track team by my PE coach and inspired by the story of one of the greatest sprinters to ever grace the planet, Wilma Glodine Rudolph. She was an American sprinter who became a world record holding Olympic champion and international sports icon in track and field following her successes in the 1956 and 1960 Olympic Games. Rudolph competed in the 200-meter dash and won a bronze medal in the 4x100-meter relay at the 1956 Summer Olympics at Melbourne, Australia. She also won three gold medals in the 100 and 200-meter individual events and the 4x100-meter relay at the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome, Italy. Now, mind you, I also ran the very same events in high school. Rudolph was acclaimed the fastest woman in the world in the 1960s and became the first American woman to win three gold medals in a single Olympic Games. That's pretty awesome. As an Olympic champion in the early 1960s, Rudolph was among the most highly visible black women in America and abroad. She became a role model for black and female athletes and her Olympic successes helped elevate women's track and field in the United States. Rudolph is also regarded as a civil rights and women's rights pioneer. In 1962, Rudolph retired from competition at the peak of her athletic career as a world record holder in the 100 and 200 meter individual events and the four by 100 meter relays. After competing in the 19 summer Olympics, the 1963 graduate of Tennessee State University became an educator and a coach. She was the 20th of 22 children from her father, Ed Rudolph's two marriages. Rudolph was born prematurely to her mom, Blanche Rudolph, at four and a half pounds on June 23, 1940 in St. Bethlehem, Tennessee. Rudolph suffered from several early childhood illnesses, including pneumonia and scarlet fever, and she contracted infantile paralysis caused by the polio virus at the age of five. She recovered from polio but lost strength in her left leg and foot. Physically disabled for much of her early life, Rudolph wore a leg brace until she was 12 years old because there was little medical care available for African-American residents of Clarksville in the 1940s. Rudolph's parents sought treatment for her at the historically black Mayhary Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, which was about 50 miles from her home in Clarksville. For two years, Rudolph and her mother made weekly bus trips to Nashville 
for treatments to regain the use of her weakened leg. She also receives subsequent at-home massage treatments four times a day from members of her family and wore an orthopedic shoe for support of her foot for another two years. Because of the treatments she received at Mayberry, Mayberry, I'm sorry, and the daily massages from her family members, Rudolph was able to overcome the de- debilitating effects of polio and finally learn to walk without a leg brace or orthopedic shoe for support by the time she was 12 years old. Rudolph was initially homeschooled due to the frequent illness- illnesses that caused her to miss kindergarten and first grade. Rudolph attended Clarksville's all-black Burt High School, where she excelled in basketball and track. During her senior year of high school, Rudolph became pregnant with her first child, Yolanda, who was born in 1958. I was two years at the time. For weeks, a few weeks before her enrollment at Tennessee State University in Nashville, so she was on her way to college. Following her Olympic victories, the United States Information Agency made a 10-minute documentary film entitled Wilma Rudolph, Olympic Champion, 1961. It was to highlight her accomplishments on track. Rudolph's appearance in 1960 on the the To Tell the Truth, I'm so excited, y'all, an American television game show and later as a guest on the famous Ed Sullivan Show also helped promote her status as an iconic sports star. On July 14, 2004, the U.S. Postal Service issued a 23-cent postage stamp, the fifth in its Distinguished American Series, in recognition of her accomplishments. In recent years, Rudolph's life has been featured in documentary documentary films and made-for-television movies. You should definitely check out one of them, if not all of them. The December 29, 1999 issue of Sports Illustrated ranked Rudolph first on its list of the top 50 greatest sports figures of the 20th century from Tennessee. ESPN ranked Rudolph 41st in its listing of the 20th century's greatest athletes. In July 1994, shortly after her mother's death, Rudolph was diagnosed with brain cancer. She also, she also had been diagnosed with throat cancer. Her condition deteriorated rapidly and she died on November 12, 1994 at the age of 54, very young, in her hometown of Brentwood, a suburb of Nashville, Tennessee. I was not as fast as Wilma Rudolph, but she overcame many obstacles and inspired me to run and do the best no matter what. By the way, I went to state and ran the same two events she went to the Olympics for. I didn't win, but I had a blast trying. try this again I've recorded this probably three or four times because I'm sitting here talking to myself and so it's very difficult to do this recording but to our podcast listeners we are still social distancing so we are recording our individual take on black history and the persons that are most impactful to us uh, from a black history perspective 
I am Cheryl Thompson, the host of Kitchen Island Tea Podcast. I just want to talk a brief moment about the women in the movie Hidden Figures. Uh, It was based on a true story about three black women who were mathematicians. The book was actually written by Margot Lee Shutterly, uh, and then they put it to screen in 2016. Now, let's talk about those three women mathematicians. Katherine Johnson, who was played by Taraji P. Henson, Mary Jackson, who was played by Janelle Monet, and Dorothy Vaughn, who was played by Octavia Spencer. I love her as an actress. The three women worked at the um, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, and this was during the space race. They were definitely responsible for calculations of launch windows and emergency return paths for what we call the Mercury Project. And that project uh, was the space flight that included astronauts such as Alan Shepard and the very famous John Glenn. And these were the first Americans in orbit. So Catherine and Mary and Dorothy were considered at that time human computers. This was before, you know, machines like IBM's mainframe came on the scene. Once IBM had created um, a computer that could do those complex calculations with great accuracy, these ladies, they made sure that they stayed relevant to NASA by learning Fortran and other computer languages that were needed to operate the IBM systems. So I'm going to give a brief history of each one of these awesome women. I'm going to start with Katherine Johnson. She was one of the first African-American women to work at NASA as a scientist. She worked there for 33 years and she was well respected for her help with the first U.S. space flights. In 2015, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom Award. In 2016, she received the Silver Snoopy Award and the NASA Group Achievement Award. And in 2019, she received the Congressional Gold Medal Award. She died in 2020 at the age of 101. In 2021, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Let's talk about Mary Jackson. Mary Jackson was the first NASA black female engineer. She worked at NASA for 34 years. This is where she earned the most senior engineering title available to women at the time. She also became the manager of the Equal Opportunity Program and Affirmative Action Program at NASA. In this role, she worked to influence the hiring and promotion of women in NASA's science, engineering, and mathematics careers. She died in 2005 at the age of 83. After her death in 2019, she was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. In 2021, the Washington DC headquarters of NASA, they renamed their building to Mary W. Jackson NASA headquarters. That's a huge honor for her name to be on that building in Washington, D.C. Now, finally, Dorothy Vaughn, who was played by Octavia Spencer. She was the first African-American woman to receive a promotion to supervisor at NASA. She worked for NASA as a mathematician and human computer. In her 28 career career, she taught the other women that she was supervising the programming language Fortran. I also took Fortran in college and learned in college, you know, Fortran, COBOL, C. 
this helped to usher in the machine computer era within NASA. She headed the program section of the Analyst Computing Division, ADC, at Langley. She died in 2008 at the age of 98. In 2019, she was also awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. Why did I choose these three women? I was so taken aback when I watched the movie in 2016 and I could finally see other women that look like me in the IT and mathematics industry. I personally have a bachelor's of computer science and with a minor in mathematics from Gremlin State University. Ever since I was a little girl, math was has been my absolute favorite subject. Math was fun to me and it still is. I was a nerd, yes, in math class, I would be the one that would answer all the questions on the test correctly, including the extra credit. Algebra was my absolute favorite type of math. I love solving equations. In high school, I was on the, the math team, yes, on the math team, and competed at Fisk University. I worked for IBM for 15 years, and currently, I'm currently still working in the channel supporting IBM Solutions. I wish I knew about these awesome and wonderful intelligent women before 2016. I would have loved to have met them. That is why black history is so important because you never know how someone else's story can inspire someone else's life. I say to all the young people and maybe not so young people out there that are interested in IT or mathematics or a scientific career, go for it. We really need to continue to encourage young people and others to get into that field, to continue to grow in that that arena uh, of science, scientists and uh, mathematicians. So I want to highlight these awesome women once again, Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn. It's me, Vanita. I'm back. But I wanted to say in parting before we close this episode that I hope you have been inspired by the people that we have highlighted to include Miles Davis, Wilma Rudolph, the three women from Nassau, that's Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, Mary Jackson. Thank you for listening. Keep learning and check you later.